God, we're grateful for this great nation in which you've placed us, grateful for the privilege of coming here and worshiping you today in a way that is far beyond my doing as we open your word together and dig into it and grapple with it. Help us to hear a word from you. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. On the Sunday before July 4th, when we celebrate the independence of our nation once again, we gather here today with profound gratitude. Sometimes we take our freedoms for granted. Sometimes we abuse our freedoms in all kinds of ways. One of the great questions through the years in these United States has been, how do we separate the church from the state? What does that mean? Some would say that it means we should have no symbols of faith in any public places. And some would also say that we should have no symbols of the state in religious places. This understandable fear is that we fall under the same kind of tyranny that made our ancestors come to these United States in the first place. I'll never forget being in a small group of pastors in Southern California several years ago, and Stephen Carter, who had just written the book, The Culture of Disbelief, he was the, um, the professor of constitutional law at Yale, said, and his whole thesis was this, that our nation's founders were more concerned about guarding the church from the state than they were about the state from the church. He felt that we had missed the point in many of the actions that we had taken in recent years. We are here in this place of sanctuary today, choosing to worship as we are. In my mind, we can make a kind of civil religion out of our history and our government, which are so great that at times we can worship them above or at least with the same kind of reverence that we hold for God. We must always worship God first, giving thanks for how he has used less than perfect men and women to secure and maintain our freedoms. Just as was true of Israel of old, sometimes we put our heroes on pedestals, don't we? We lift them up and forget that they had trials and they had difficult times, that they had failures just like we. For example, one of the most famous people in these United States is Abraham Lincoln. Did you know that in 1832 he was defeated for state legislature? In 1833 he failed in his business. In 1835 his sweetheart died. In 1836 he had a nervous breakdown. In 1838 he was defeated in his bid for Speaker of the Illinois House. In 1843 he was defeated for nomination to Congress. In 1848 he lost renomination for Congress. In 1849, he was rejected for land officer. In 1854, he was defeated for the United States Senate. In 1856, he was defeated in a nomination for the vice president. In 1858, he was again defeated in nomination for the Senate. All this took place, of course, before he was elected as the president of the United States in 1860. Could it be that our failures and defeats Help us know that we, de- that we need to depend more upon God and not ourselves. God is the one who is ultimately in control and not us. 
So it must have been with David, Israel's great king. As we continue this series entitled, After God's Own Heart, on the life of King David, the passage we're looking at today finds David and his 600 loyal men as men without a country. If you would, please follow along with me as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 29, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or your pew Bibles or on the screen. Listen now for the word of the Lord. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish, and Achish was the king of the Philistines. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He was already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him and said, Send that man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must, go, he must not go with us, with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul had slain his thousands, and David his ten of, of thousands? So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you've been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Turn. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered, I know that you've been as pleasing in my eyes as, as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. May God add his blessing, understanding, and also his application upon the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's first look at David's situation here. Now, last week we left David as in a, in a great moment of uh, triumph after he had uh, overcome and defeated the great giant Goliath. But after that, things began to crumble for young David. As you might imagine, David's fame spread like wildfire. Fire. If you were looking at the, the musical charts of that day, the top tune would have been one that had lyrics that said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Even though David became best friends with Saul, with uh, Jonathan, who was one of Saul's sons, and he married Saul's daughter, Michael, Saul was intensely jealous of David. That jealousy 
became a kind of paranoia, and his threat level was so high that it caused Saul to try to take David's life. So David had to flee for his own well-being, and he took 600 of the best warriors with him. Saul and his army chased after them. On a couple of occasions, David caught Saul in vulnerable places and could have killed him, but he chose to spare his life. The grace shown him did not slow Saul down, however. In a kind of rage, blind rage, he continued to pursue the legendary shepherd. Realizing the reality of the situation, David sought asylum with their horrible, dreaded enemies, the Philistines. They at first settled in Goliath's hometown of Gath. Can you imagine that? Where Achish the king highly respected David. Living there for a year and four months, David and his warriors raided some of the enemies of the Philistines and and did some wonderful things so that Achish trusted David implicitly. Those peoples raided by David, however, were not Israel. This all changes in the passage that I just read in 1 Samuel 29, where the Philistines are preparing battle against David's countrymen, Israel, while David and his faithful band were placed at the rear of the army with Achish the king. They were ready to do battle against Israel. If I were one of those news people who were embedded in the Philistine army, and I had the opportunity to interview David at this point, I wonder what would have been David's frame of mind in this situation. Maybe the dialogue would have gone something like this. Try to imagine this. Me. David, it wasn't that long ago that you defeated the great Philistine Goliath, leading Israel to a stunning victory in the Valley of Elah. How did you ever get to the point of now being with the Philistines, ready to go against your countrymen, the Israelites? David, well, Jim, it's been... A stirring string, it's been a difficult string of events to be sure, one that no one could have predicted. It's been fueled by jealousy and the paranoia of King Saul, who I respected and wanted desperately to serve. While I'd been anointed by old Samuel to become the next king, it was never my desire to be a threat to Saul. I was willing to wait for God's timing. Me, David. There's a sense in which you're a victim of your own success. All of this pain and danger for you and your family are none of your doing. It doesn't seem fair. Aren't you angry with God? Oh, no, Jim. A thousand times no. I have felt God's presence and help in a far greater way than I could have ever imagined. Instead of anger with God, I'm filled with overwhelming gratitude. God has been my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Well, David, those are wonderful words. But in a few hours, do you realize you may may be doing battle with your own flesh and blood? How will you feel if you have to take up your sword against one of your own brothers? David, I'm not certain how all of this is going to turn out. I've been well taken care of by Achish and his people. I must be loyal to them. I'm placing this whole situation in God's hands. 
somehow, some way, God will work out his purpose in this very troubling situation. Let's look at the Philistines' dilemma. While Achish had grown to respect and trust David implicitly, that trust was not shared by the Philistine military leaders, and probably rightfully so. They had seen David in action not only with Goliath, one of the worst defeats that they had ever endured, but also on those numerous raids. And one thing that they knew for sure, David was shrewd and David was dangerous. This could be a plot in which David would go to the enemy so that at the right moment he could turn on them, turn on the Philistines, and win back his, the graces of King Saul, the man who had been trying to take his life. Or at best, in the heat of the battle, David his men undoubtedly, as they faced family or friends, their loyalties would change. They couldn't help it, even though it wasn't their intent. With all this in mind, the military leaders were adamant. David and his men cannot go to battle against Israel, and they can't be in the rear with Achish. It was Achish's unenviable task to send David and his loyal men back to Ziglag, which was down south in, Phil- in the Philistines' territory. When Achish speaks to David, he tells him that he's been honored to serve with him and that he has been reliable in every way, yet he must turn and go back to Ziglag in faith. And David understandably says, no, I've done nothing wrong. Has he not served Achish faithfully? So he pleads with Achish to let him go into battle against the foes of the Philistines. Achish's response, if you notice this in verse 9, is very interesting when he says that David has been as pleasing in his eyes as an angel of God. It's as if he's saying that he has been a messenger of God to him. Wow, what a statement for a Philistine to say about an Israelite. David, who was a man after God's own heart, had allowed God to shine through him in the most positive ways. But after that, Achish tells David that he and his men must leave early the next morning and travel south to Ziglag. He cannot go with the Philistines. David does not have a choice. It's completely out of his hands. As you view the happenings of your life, like all of us, there are times when it seems that our lives are out of our control. You're focused to go in directions that you may have never anticipated. In some cases, you've done nothing wrong. In fact, you may have been faithful. You may have been obedient. It just wasn't supposed to be like this. David and his men are men without a country. Think about it. Try to put yourself in in David's place as they get up early the next morning and they begin the long three hard days of journey back to Ziglag. How could this be happening? First, they're rejected and threatened by Saul and the Israelite army after David brings great victory. 
Now, after a year and a half with the Philistines doing everything they asked of him, they're rejected again. In essence, they have been faithful and done nothing wrong. It's been the paranoia of a troubled king who's jealous. And it's not their malfeasance which caused them to be rejected by Saul. And now it's the suspicions and the mistrust of the Philistine military leaders causing further rejection. <laughs> they were men without a country. They, there, all 600 of them, were like a ship floating out of control on a sea of uncertainty. There was no place to cast their anchor. Literally, all they had left were their families and the few possessions that they had, which they were heading toward in Siglag. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it's some of it's your own doing. You may have made some mistakes and they've come back to haunt you. Your life is out of control. You were rejected by seemingly everyone. There's no place to cast an anchor of security. On the other hand, quite honestly, none of it maybe was your making. Humanly speaking, it wasn't fair. But there's nothing you could do about it. You felt like an utter failure. I can think of such a time. In 2008, I felt strongly that God was calling me to leave the Southport Presbyterian Church where I'd served as senior pastor for 13 and a half years. I felt that they needed a new voice, and I felt I needed a new challenge. The people at SPC thought that I was going to stay for several more years until retirement, and so they were shocked when I resigned in May of 2008. Through a series of events, none of my own making, in August of 2009, I was without employment and too young to retire. I had severed my quadricep on my left leg and couldn't start physical therapy for eight weeks after surgery. I'd never felt so helpless physically. I experienced many rejections as I wrote and, and, and queried around about becoming a pastor of another church. I mean, people just don't want pastors my age and much less one who's broken down. I was without a job. I'd never been without a job since my middle years, teenage years. It was a tough pill to swallow. It was at that point also that I found a young man was coming from Orlando to visit me to ask my, for my daughter's hand in marriage, my only daughter. I couldn't even drive to the airport to pick him up. Alice had to. What's more, because we'd paid Becky's way through college and seminary, we didn't have a huge savings account, but we had enough for a wedding. We were going to need to use that savings to live on for the next few months. Well, Alice and I were in a place completely out of our control. I must say that we felt a sense of peace. Even though the future was completely unknown, it was in God's hands. Somehow I believe David must have experienced that same kind of peace. God in his wonderful providence cared for David and his men. While rejected and completely uprooted, David and his men must have felt a little bit of relief. 
I mean, now they wouldn't have to go against Israel out of loyalty and gratitude to Achish and the Philistines who had taken them in. They didn't have to do battle with their own countrymen and maybe some of their own family members. For our purposes today, we skip over chapter 30. We're going to deal with that next week and look at the battle between the Philistines and Israel, which ensued in chapter 31. In the first paragraph, we quickly discover that the battle was hard fought and David's best friend, Jonathan, who had protected him from his father, Saul, was killed. King Saul was critically wounded, and then he took his own life. Do you think David could have ever lived with himself if he had gone to battle against Israel? How would he ever have gone home to tell Michael, his wife, that he had done battle where her father and her brother were killed? How could he have ever become Israel's greatest king if he had fought on the side of their arch enemies, the Philistines, that day? In God's wonderful providence, he was protecting David for the purpose that he had for him later. In retrospect, I'm sure that he could clearly see that the rejection of the paranoid king and the rejection that came from the Philistine military leaders was a part of God's ultimate plan to preserve David. God had big plans for David. Dear friends, while we might not see God's providence as clearly displayed as David in retrospect must have seen it, God is still providentially working his purpose out in each one of our lives, every bit as much as David's. And even though we experience rejection and feel at times like we were aimlessly floating on a sea of uncertainty, God is working out his purpose. Maybe we'll never understand it, quite frankly. There's still some things in this life that I do not understand. And I can't say, even in retrospect, that it's all worth it. But Paul's words from Romans 8.28 are so important. I believe them completely, even though sometimes I have a hard time and they get caught in my throat because of situations I think about. And we know that all things work together for good to those who are to love God and are the called according to his purpose. The rest of my story. In a way completely beyond my doing, in November of 2009, when we were coming to the end of our savings, not long before a wedding, I received the call to become the interim pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, a church I had long admired. My salary was more than I'd ever made and allowed us to give my daughter the kind of wedding she'd always dreamed of having. In a way that I still don't understand, I was spared a really difficult time in the life of the Southport Presbyterian Church at the same time that I was serving in a place where I saw God use my experience and my gifts. Less than a month after I left San Antonio, I received a call to become the interim pastor of another great church that I've long admired. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the Zionsville Presbyterian Church. Praise God for the way in which he continually works out his purpose in our lives 
if we will get out of the way and allow Him to do so. Even though we may feel like we're people without a country at times, our citizenship is always in heaven. And you and I can depend upon the God of heaven in all the circumstances of our lives. If for any reason today you feel like you're kind of floating aimlessly on a sea of uncertainty and would like someone to listen to and pray with you after the service, after we celebrate communion together, there will be a time when people will gather at the cross over here and, if you would, and they would consider it a great privilege to be alongside of you. As we prepare to celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion, as we soon gather around this table as the family of faith, this table is a living demonstration of God's providential love for each one of us. Never has there been a man more rejected, a man more alone, a man who was without a country. I mean, the Romans didn't know how to deal with him and certainly wouldn't have named him as a Roman. The Jews were the ones who were crucifying him, his countrymen. Yet in God's amazing grace, God used his death as a provision for all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let us come humbly with joy to celebrate Jesus' body broken and his blood shed so that we might be forgiven if we place our faith in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the example of David. And we must admit that uh, as we look at our lives, all the pieces don't fall into place right now at times. And yet we're on a faith journey and we place ourselves in your hands. Be with each of my brothers and sisters here now as we gather around this table. In Jesus' name, amen.